So, if you will turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We will be finishing up, Lord willing, this chapter here on pages 3 and 4, if you're following along in the Pew Bible. Just to get everyone on the same page, we have been studying through the book of Genesis, the introduction to everything, and we have seen how the Lord has created all things, created marriage, created human beings, male and female, and made a covenant with them that they might be obedient to the one command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, if you're familiar with the story, this is exactly what they've done and consumed of that fruit Now we're going to hear the consequences, the penalties, the response of justice here in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14. So listen carefully, for this is God's word for us here today. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing for our text here today. Oh, Jesus, we have here a hard word, but yet within a blessing. So, Lord, help us to see your mercy, even in judgment, as we examine this passage And how it explains to us how the world works. Lord, help me to preach this accurately and well. Help us to receive it deep into our hearts so that we not only know, but believe. 
Lord, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today, we are taking a look at the curses in Genesis chapter 3. God's response to our sin. This is a really important passage for us to understand the world and how it truly is today. There is a reason why I can pray about earthquakes and floods and famines and wars and all of these things that we hear about all the time on the news. And we can tend to look at this and say, why does the world have to be like this? Can't we all just get along? Can't we finally figure out how to make this world a better place? And we tend to look towards things to give us hope. We look every day at the futurists that will say that technology will solve all of our problems. Eventually, we'll have a computer that will be smart enough to understand all of our problems and to direct us how we might live. Or eventually, medical surgeries will advance to the point where death will be no more. We just saw here this week, we saw the second patient given a genetically altered heart from an animal and to be used as a replacement for his own heart. So far, he's doing well, but we'll see. We can tend to put our hope in all of these things into the future, things that we can innovate our way around life's problems. But for those of you who have been around here for a while, you've heard those promises before, haven't you? You've heard about the wonderful world of tomorrow that Disney was so fond of singing about. But their hope that they put their faith in is one that we can see here from Genesis 3 is a false one. Our hope does not exist in things that we can make with our hands. Our hope does not exist in what we can code with our computers. Our hope exists by what we read right here in Genesis chapter 3. Even in the midst of judgment... We will see mercy. Even in the midst of cursing, we'll see blessing. So let's explore this together. You'll see in your outline, this is kind of a two-parter that we started last time. We looked at how sin breaks relationships with shame and blame. And we'll see here in point number two how sin breaks creation with death and pain. We will explore that. But we're also going to see today how Jesus is going to restore creation through life and relief. So let's look together here in Genesis chapter 3. In verse 14, the Lord begins going his way down those that have committed sin, beginning with the first one here, the serpent, who we, as you remember, in Revelation chapter 20, is identified with the devil. But here he's used the serpent to deceive humanity, to appeal to their pride, and here the serpent is going to bear his shame. Now, you're going to see the word cursed show up a lot, so it's worthwhile defining. One of my old seminary professors talks about curse is, has the idea of banishment from the place of blessing. You're being put outside where good is. We're going to see this, especially when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, that this is a curse. is being pushed away, not only from a garden, not only from a place, but from a person. We'll see the separation between humanity and God. 
And this being the biggest curse of sin. And here we're going to see other effects that this curse has. And beginning with the serpent, the Lord says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Here the snake is going to endure a particular dishonor amongst all the rest of the beasts of the field. And you'll notice also cursed above all the other livestock, implying that all the rest of them get cursed too. Everyone is going to get subject to this humility at some level, but the snake more so as a symbol of rebellion, as a symbol of this sin. It says, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Then he gets to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. I'm going to stop here. If we remember what the original command in Genesis chapter 2 was, that Adam and Eve were told that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they will surely die in the day that they're given to it. And I can imagine, as Adam and Eve are listening to what God is telling the serpent, that I could imagine a large question mark appearing above their heads as they find out the snake is going to have children. And you can imagine Adam and Eve saying, Excuse me? He gets to have kids? He gets to have hope? He gets to have a future? What does this mean? We're going to die. He's the one that started it. Why does he get to live? Then I can imagine the very next line would hit them with another question mark that would be even more so than the other one. I'll start again, verse 15. I'll put enmity, that is conflict, hardship, loggerheads between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Hmm? He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, now this is interesting, isn't it? Eve is going to have children too. So this means that there's not going to be death, at least immediately. We'll explore what that means here in a moment. But what I want us to take a look at is this is going to be our first note of promise. Here we've had judgment. Serpent is going to be dishonored above any and all creatures. And that there is going to be conflict between this snake and the woman and between their, his offspring and her offspring for all of redemptive history. A lot of cursing. Eternal war, it seems. But yet, there's going to be the opportunity for life. There's going to be offspring. There's going to be children. And where there are children, there is hope. When a nation gives up on children, the nation has given up on hope. And this is something that strikes us intuitively. We had some shocking news come out from China's demographics this week, that their birth rate has fallen by 70%, which is the most that any human culture has ever dropped their birth rate. Now, I give you that statistic, and we all feel that, don't we? What do you mean the birth rate has fallen that much? Beyond all the other economic implications that that's going to have for the world in the future, 
That represents a startling lack of hope. That something that we are all innately driven towards, something that we all prize and protect, a whole civilization has decided it's not worth it. That's a loss of hope. And on the contrary, when we see families that have produced a lot of children, if we can get past our own selfish inclinations about how hard it is to go to a restaurant, (laughs) we look at them and say, these people have got some hope that they're going to be able to raise all of these children. I find typically when people who have had this many children, they have an unbelievable joy that's hard to understand for those that haven't been a part of it. Their challenge is sure, but is there hope? Yes. I remember getting to attend one of my friend's weddings. It was one of how many Boyds are there? Nine Boyds. And thinking, wow, nine children, that's a way to live. And then I saw them at the wedding. The oldest son was getting married, and all the rest of the children were singing with delight. I thought, oh, okay. That's a hope. And that's the first one that we see here. Now, this is beyond, for those of us that have the pleasure and the privilege of being in the New Testament times, we get to look at this verse with even more joy. Because it's not just, well, there's going to be a pile of humans that are going to be able to go against the snake people. Because, in fact, what we're seeing here are a singular. We get to the end of verse 15. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. Means giving a mortal wound, not just a black eye, but a mortal wound. And you shall bruise his heel. For those of us who are in the New Testament, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, that's Jesus. He's the hope to get there. And he's the one who crushes the head of the snake. He's the one who defeats Satan. Not only at the cross, but what we saw there in Revelation 20, right? He binds him forever. There's something really important for us to keep in mind. This promise is still operative. We don't get to look at evil and say, well, I guess there's just nothing we can do. I guess it's just how it's going to be. The bad guy always gets away with it in the end. No, he doesn't. Satan's not going to get away with it. The devil is not going to win. Because it's said from the beginning and from the end of this book that Jesus will win. He will crush the head of the snake. So we don't have to be discouraged and afraid of all of the negative news that we see. We have to remind ourselves of Genesis 3. Yes, Genesis 3, where the curses are. Because even in the curses, God is so good as to mix hope and a future. That's what we see out of Genesis 15. Now... When it gets to, and you shall bruise his heel, this is going to cost Jesus something. That's why we have a cross. Jesus had to go through pain to fix this, to crush the head of the snake. But it was just a flesh wound. If you can talk about crucifixion and death like that, because with Jesus, you can. Jesus rose from the dead. 
It wasn't a mortal wound forever. He rose again and crushes the head of evil. That's our hope. Now, how is this hope going to come? Well, it's going to come through childbearing. This is not going to be a pleasant process. As we see in verse 16. Let's continue. Now, you know, I hasten to point out, along with other scholars in this, you'll notice the word curse doesn't show up here, interestingly. Curse shows up for the serpent and for the man. Does not show up for the woman. I'll leave you to, to, to understand why as we continue on here. Because what we're going through, the unique gifting however much our culture says otherwise, the unique gifting of the woman is bearing children, and that is not a curse. No matter how much our culture says that our bodies are interchangeable and that children are an inconvenience, even Genesis 3 will not let us think that. So let's continue. To the woman, God is saying, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And here the surely multiply, multiply is the same word that we got in the original creation mandate to go forth and multiply. Here in multiplying, there will be a multiplication of pain. There will still be blessing, but there's going to be hardship along with it. Even the woman is not going to get away from the effects of sin. And it's going to visit her area uniquely. Now, it's worth pointing out in each of these curses, this is God describing how life is going to be, not prescribing how life must be. So this is not saying, women, you must not take any medical means to reduce pain in any way. It's not what we have here. And any more that we, that we don't make new tools to make farming easier. But as any woman will tell you, no matter how much medicine you give, you do not make that pregnancy process in any way easy. So guys, we got to help out as much as we can and realize that this is what she is bearing. But in it, she'll bear children. So this is the first aspect of the difficulty of the woman's life is that the thing that she has been uniquely privileged to do Sin is going to affect that too. Sin is comprehensive. It's going to get its fingers into everything, including this next phrase. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, would that we had the time to go over how many ways this verse has probably been one of the most controversial verses in Genesis as to what does this mean? And it's worth Going over, so we will, because how we view this verse impacts how the one half of the planet interacts with the other half of the planet. But the fact that this has been such a debated verse points to the truth of it, and that there is going to be conflict between husbands and wives. Because in summation, that's what this means. You'll notice in many different translations of this verse... Some will say that your desire will be contrary to. Some say your desire will be towards. Some say your turning shall be towards your husband. This is complicated because the word there for desire only shows up three times in the Old Testament. Twice here in Genesis and once in Song of Solomon. And that's it. It's hard to find the use of a word when it only shows up three times. 
But I don't think that we are left with not knowing how to interpret this. So when we look at your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, we can look in the next chapter, in chapter 4, starting in verse 7, the latter half of the verse, we see the exact same words in the exact same order conveying the same thought. Here we go. Let's talk about Cain. God is talking to him and it says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Listen carefully. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Same words, same structure, same thought. Here what sin is doing is sin wants to have mastery over Cain. And Cain needs to rule over that. And it's the same thing here. There's really no... You can try to soften that, but that's what the Scripture does tell us. Now, when we go into the New Testament, we'll see what this picture is supposed to look like. Here in Genesis, what we have is there's going to be eternal conflict for who's going to be in charge. But in Ephesians chapter 5, it tells us what this relationship actually should look like. And what we see in Ephesians chapter 5, go ahead and turn there with me if you will. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see this same thing put out. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And then jumping down to verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then it goes, if you'll skip down to verse 32, Paul is saying, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And just the verse before that, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. The reason I bring all that up is that sometimes people will look at Genesis chapter 3 and say, Ah, the idea of a husband leading his family is a result of the fall. And that what we used to live in is a perfect equality of society. And now we're dealt with the harsh patriarchy. I see here this same concept is in Ephesians, and it's grounded in the gospel, not in the fall. But I give people grace who interpret it that way because we men have been pretty terrible in how we're supposed to treat our wives. This should be looked at, especially in light of the gospel, of a husband's taking responsibility and husbands taking loving, sacrificial leading in their families to be a blessing. That's what it should be. But so often it's not. And that's where the Genesis 3 comes in. There is conflict in what should be the most intimate relationship we have. Both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, marriage is pictured as one flesh, one body. United together. Have you ever seen somebody who has an autoimmune disease, a body that's allergic to itself? And the suffering that takes place when a body is at war with itself, it can't function. This is the effect of sin. Cure, of course, is the gospel. And instead, where there is a loving, sacrificial leading for the betterment of the family, even sacrificing of his own Wants and desires. 
and then a family following after that because that's following after Jesus. This is what Genesis points to us. So what we should take away from this is when we say, oh, well, there is a curse here in sin that there is going to be conflict in marriage. This is going to be a universal thing in marriages, but we are going to pretend that our marriage is fine. And we're not going to seek out help because we don't want to be the only ones. Trust me, you're not the only ones. So seek help. You don't have to stay. It doesn't have to be constant conflict. But it's a reality that there will, that there will be conflict. But there can be resolution in the gospel. And as you grow in grace and in the gospel, we can grow and less in conflict. But to not be surprised. Nor should the rest of us be scandalized when we find out that marriages aren't perfect. It's okay. For those that have wonderful marriages, oh, that's such a blessing. And should thank God for that every day. And for those marriages that need work, to reach out in hope in the gospel. Because there is hope to be found there. Now, let's move on to 17. We get to Adam. Here, the word curse comes back. Here to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, same word that is used of pain in childbirth, by the way. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And here what he describes, some other translations in the King James Version, I like that one. It says, in toil. For those of you that have been at work for a while, can you not identify? Everything just should work, and then it just doesn't. Crops fail. Wi-Fi connections go down. Emails go unsent. Projects don't move forward. People don't do their jobs. And we always react to it with frustration and surprise. I'm terrible at estimating how long a project will take. I tell my wife, oh, it'll be 20 minutes, 40 minutes max, three hours later. I've almost started, honey. Can you not identify? Here, one of my old professors had put it this way, in that the ground that used to be Adam's servant is now his enemy. This is the world that we live in. Men, this is the world, and women, this is the work, what it's like. So please don't put your identity in your work. You're going to be frustrated a lot. Don't do that. Nor should we be surprised when we experience setbacks. Because this is what we see. Work is not the result of the fall. It's the toiling in our work that's the result of it. All the things that just don't work when they should. This is the fall. But then we get to our final line. The most devastating of all. In verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till... You return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
the curse of death. There it is. In Genesis chapter 2, we read of, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And while God was merciful in sparing the biological stopping of life, we've already talked about how there's going to be a spiritual separation from all things good, which we've seen, how else can you describe that but a death? But make no mistake of it, Adam and Eve are going to physically die. They're going to be barred from the tree of life so that they can't eat of it and live forever. By the way, that's a mercy that they don't have to live in a cursed world forever. Points to the fact that there's even a hope beyond the grave, even as far back as Genesis goes. But we are dust, and we will return to dust. This is something that Adam and Eve are going to be reminded of every day. Because everything's new. Every time they get dressed in the morning, something we don't even think about anymore. But for Adam and Eve, when they put on clothes, it was a reminder, you're going to die. You've got something to cover up now. Every time you walk out into the garden and there are all the weeds again, you're going to die. You've disobeyed God. Every night of pain and discomfort for Eve, she brings children into the world, you're going to die. For any of you who have ever had to have the experience of a diagnosis of cancer for a loved one or for yourself, if you've ever been told, I'm sorry, there's nothing further we can do, you walk out of that office a very different person than when you walked in. And that's what Adam and Eve have experienced here. No, they don't die immediately. But they do. Everything's different now. Now we all have an enemy. Now in modern life, we figured out how to distract ourselves from it. Most of us don't think about it. That's why when we go to a funeral, usually it's very much a shock. People are very vulnerable during a funeral because we don't think about death anymore. We don't walk past headstones to go to church. I'm not saying whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But we've stopped thinking about it. Or when we do, we think about it as an escape. We'll even make jokes about it. It's like, well, I'll sleep when I'm dead. But this death here is not supposed to be an escape. It's an accounting We need to take this seriously. This is the result of our sin. This is the greatest evil and enemy that we'll ever face. And oftentimes, and I've done it too, when we go to funerals, we don't talk about that enough. Death is an enemy. Death is unnatural. It shouldn't be like this. It's not how the world was created to be. But it is. And that's the final word that we're given. There will be conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Again, we didn't have time to take a look at this, but you'll actually see that woven all through the rest of Scripture. There's going to be two lines, two births, two family trees, 
all the way through the Old Testament. A wonderful podcast Bible talk that really draws this out. You should take a listen to it and hear it all fully. But you will see there's going to be two lines always in conflict all the way to the end of redemptive history. There's going to be pain for every child that that line produces. There's going to be hardship for the provision for that child all the way. And in the end, there's going to be death. Now, in light of all that, here we get to verse 20. And the man called his wife's name Eve because, or because it means, she was the mother of all living. Adam, were you not paying attention? We've just been told everybody's going to die. How are you going to say this is the woman of all living? Just a moment ago, you were throwing her under the bus. But this points to hope, doesn't it? There's going to be life in the end. And here, verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, for Adam and for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. The last mercy that he gives. You remember, Adam had leaves that would break apart, fall away. He gives him something permanent. But this is really interesting. It's one of my old seminary professors looked at this verse, and here's what he thought of it. He said, Adam took the leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature's humanity might be relieved. This was the last thing that Adam would have thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and death familiar, but Adam recognized death as the punishment of sin. Death was to the early man a sign of God's anger, and he had to learn that sin could be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by and that would grow again next year, but only by pain and blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action nor without the expenditure of feeling. Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing from the first sin to the last. The track of the sinner is marked with blood. This is what we see. And as commentators pointed out, when you would offer an animal sacrifice later on in the Old Testament, you would give the skin to the priest as a reminder of this very passage. And then finally, the Lord sends them out of the garden as one last act of mercy that they don't have to endure this life forever and are sent out to work the ground. So what are we supposed to take away from all these curses? What are we supposed to do? Well, one of the things that I don't want us to take away from this is that we walk away with a sense of depression and say, well... That was cheery. But to look at this is to say, I'm wanting you to see life for what it really is. Because I don't want you to get your hope from here, from this world, from our progress. I want your eyes to look higher. Because it's so easy to get distracted with what's here at ground level. I want you to to know, there's nothing here. It's all going to go back to dust. Your work is going to be toil. The greatest of joys will come out of the greatest of pains. 
and that the joys that you do experience here, I want you to enjoy them. As someone who is... As someone who is smelling bread being baked in the kitchen, enjoy the smell of that, knowing there's something better coming. Instead of looking at this joy like, you, like these people on these Survivor shows that find a squirrel, they're like, ha, calories for one more day. That's not how I want you to look at the joys of your life. So desperate for another hit to get through another hour of your life but that the joys that you experience would be a reminder of the greater joy of heaven that's coming for you. That's what these curses are supposed to be. But we have to see reality for what it is. Relationships and childbearing, two expected sources of joy and delight, often include pain and suffering. Work and production, two expected sources of purpose and accomplishment, often include toil and setback. That's what this is. And we can look at these things and say, this ought not to be. And you are exactly correct. But that there is going to be restoration coming. There's bread in the oven, folks. Supper's on its way. The end of suffering is coming. And you know what? Jesus has desired and does walk in the pain with you right now. Don't even hear, well, just try to get through life as the best you can. Soldier on because good times are coming. No, there's peace to find right now. The Lord is sovereign in your suffering. When you're at work and things are not going the way that they are supposed to do, despite all of your hard effort, It's not about the work that you produce. It's about who you're producing it for. And even if your life's work becomes nothing, if you've done it for Jesus, it lasts for eternity. It brings purpose even to your toil. Even when you are suffering in your relationships with others, even if you say, I'm giving of myself and I'm just not getting anything back from these people, that's not the point. Your spouse cannot give you your sense of worth. I don't care how good they are. You only get that from Jesus. So look to him. Christ is present even in your sufferings. And you know what? He sympathizes with them. Jesus became a person. He knows what you're going through. I was reading one article about this very subject this week, about how unbelievably precious the gift of the sympathy of God is. Have you ever been talking with someone about a problem that you have, and they have no idea what that problem is like? And then you go and you talk to someone who has experienced that problem, and what a difference that makes? Even if they can't solve your problem, just because someone knows... Jesus knows. Your God knows what it's like to have a body that's failing. Your God knows what it's like to invest in people and then have them betray you at the end. Your God knows what it's like to gasp for a final breath. 
There is nowhere in suffering that Jesus has not walked with you first and promises to walk with you now. He's not standing away from the curses, lobbing things at you. He is right there with you. That's our God. That's Genesis. Now, what about the snake? What can we take from that? Well, there's only two lines. You're either with the snake or you're with Christ. He said so himself. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. You're either with me or you're against me. There is no neutrality with Jesus. So are you his? Think about that individually here. It's easy to think I'm like talking to a crowd of people, but I wish I could look at each one of you individually and say the same thing over and over and over again. Have you been made right with God? Have you had your sins forgiven? Have you been bought from the line of the serpent and brought into the family of God? If you've not been, then all you have is curses, removal from the places of blessing, both now and in eternity. But if you have put your trust in Christ, held up your sins and say, I don't want these anymore. Take them from me. Forgive me from these things and help me to live as followers of you. If that defines your life, then these blessings are for you. And as we're going to see here, this table is for you. But if not, ask him to forgive you of your sins today. And he will remove that curse so that when you, fellow dust people, Return to dust, because we will. Your soul will be taken to a place of blessing. And one day your body remade and the curse removed far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we have together to look at this wonderful passage of Scripture, even in all of its sharp edges that cut us, that make us feel the pain of the existence we have here. Help us be able to look pain, to know what it is, to know that we're not just whistling in the dark, to walk through the ICU of the children's hospital and recognize the horror that that is. And yet with boldness to praise you, that one day that suffering will be ended and it has a purpose and will culminate one day in redemption. Oh, bring that day soon, Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen.